Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, your bearer of all the best the Midwest has to offer, bringing you another episode of Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice, douse it in oil, wrap it in foil, bake it in the oven, and top it off with butter and a dollop of sour cream. On today's episode, we're revisiting an invigorating conversation from our 2021 Transgender Justice Teach-In, where we heard from Marique Jensen, Romeo Jackson, Cody Charles, and Bishop Howard for a session called The Next Generation, Building Liberated Futures with Queer and Trans Youth. In a moment where we have been barraged by continued attacks from legislators on queer and trans children, especially in the arenas of sports and facilities. It's important for us to revisit this one-year-old conversation because many of the takeaways from last year are just as vital, if not more important, in this moment. Our panelists grappled with a big question around who do we even consider youth? and how we define that in our organizations, in our organizing, and in our social services. We also contended with how being young or being a youth, i.e. being innocent, is not afforded equitably or proportionately across racialized lines. Overall, this conversation offers some significant guideposts for how we need to be in relationship with other young people and how we need to defer to them to be the ambassadors and the spokespeople for what they need instead of playing savior or making decisions on their behalf without them as part of the decision-making process. The tactics of our opposition have made it very clear that they are coming after our youth because they want to ensure that trans youth do not become trans adults, that don't become trans elders, and they are adamant about annihilating us, disappearing us, and ensuring that we cannot have thrush, meaningful, abundant livelihoods. I start off this conversation with our panelists asking them to answer if their life were to be turned into a movie, or a book, what is one scene in their youth that would be an absolute must in depicting their story? Their answers are filled with warmth, humor, complexity, reflection, uncertainty, but overall they share very significant pieces of their selves. Anecdotes that are meaningful in how they have then become who they are now and how they have been shaped by family, by friends, by strangers, by boys doting on them in their childhood. And for me, it's these moments, these warm, intimate, almost secret, special, sacred moments that are going to be the life force of how we ensure that trans youth, however you define it, are being invited into abundance. When we share these special, sacred, simple little moments that shape who we are as people, we invite youth into conversation, into consideration, to craft their own narratives, to be reflective about what has shaped them, and to be selective about not allowing the opposition to shape their understanding of who they are. It is very simple for us to internalize the message that the opposition has spat again and again at us 
about how we're dysfunctional or an interruption. But when we allow queer and trans youth to be the orators and the curators and the dictators of their own story, such as what you'll hear from these four panelists, then we reclaim and maintain the power to reject the narrative that is being created for us by folks who do not want us to exist. I'm reminded of a key question that Laverne Cox asks at the end of each of her podcast episodes, where she poses to her guest, what else is true? And for me, even in light and in the face of all of the diabolical things that our opposition has to say about us and how they've mobilized to create legislation and policy and practice against our existence, what we know is also true. What else is true is that there are more, many more stories being crafted and curated by queer and trans youth to combat and negate and to outweigh all of the diabolical things that the opposition has to say. And we need to hold on to those and spread those and share those in the moments where we feel discouraged by yet another legislative attack on our children, on our youths, on our young adults, on our adults, on our elders. It does not discriminate by gender. And the next generation is going to be cast and curated by us. And with that, Grab your snacks and gather round for this magnanimous episode of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely gonna talk about Midwest nice. And if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. Here to share their insight about how to be aligned with the needs of TGQ communities are four incredible folks um, who have all some tie to the Midwest region, um, as well as affiliations with projects or spaces that center youth in some way. So really excited to invite these folks into conversation today and want to start off um, right at the gate with some introductions, specifically your name, uh, pronouns that you would like used in this space, any orgs or project affiliations you want to um, bring up. And then I want to know if someone was going to write a book or make a movie, and perhaps that person is you, right? But write a book or make a movie about your life. What is one moment from your youth that would be essential to include? I'll start. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my name is Bishop, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am the program director at an organization called Lyric, which stands for the Lavender Youth Recreation and Information Center um, here in the Bay Area. Uh, we're located in the Castro. I'm also a therapist. Um, and if someone wrote a book or a movie about my life, one moment, um, 
I guess one appropriate moment would be coming out. Um, I think maybe it sounds cheesy, but I think that was such a pivotal moment. Someone once told me that, um, so I came out like right after I ended high school and someone once told me that they were like going through my Facebook pictures and any picture of me before um, college, they never saw me smile. Um, and so like, for me, like kind of that coming out is kind of the division between those two moments or those two parts of my life. So I think that that would probably be, um, yeah, the moment. And I will pass it off to Cody. Thank, thank you, Bishop. Um, my name is Cody Charles. I use all pronouns. Um, I'm here in Lawrence, Kansas, working uh, with a project called House of McCoy. Um, the project is for queer and trans youth um, in the Lawrence community, um, and specifically serving the most marginalized within queer and trans youth, um, which is interesting for a nonprofit. Um, House of McCoy is actually named after and dedicated to uh, one of my main femtors in life, taught me a lot about living, actually, uh, Dr. Sheltrice McCoy. Um, and so with uh, House of McCoy, we hope to honor them and um, um, live the ways that they lived um, and beyond policies and procedures. Um, a movie or a book, I think at some point it would have to show up when um, I would pretend to be Michelle Kwan or Dominique Dawes, specifically thinking about the 96 Olympics. And you should have seen me. You know, you couldn't tell me nothing. I couldn't afford no um, ice skating uh, or whatever it is. I couldn't afford to go to the skating rink. So you kind of do what you got to do. Um, but yeah, I was uh, part of the Magnificent Seven, 96 Olympics in Atlanta. Uh, they called me Awesome Dawson. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Romeo Jackson. My pronouns are they and them. Um, affiliations that matter in this context. I was like, cause we'll have the absolute ghetto of all the affiliations. Um, BRP 100, which stands for Black Youth Project 100. Um, it's interesting because youth in our name means 18 to 35, which we can talk about the history of how that came to be. Um, but we're a Black member-based organization, um, kind of hoping to impact the, much, the material conditions of Black people through policy, direct action, and leadership development stuff. Um, one moment. Um, because I'm sentimental this way and love my grandmother, it of course has to be about Gracie Lee Fowler, because who else could it be about? Um, th I this memory, she's teaching me how to cut, pick, clean, and cook greens, like, and it takes like fucking forever. But I'm like nine or something, so I'm like super young. And she's teaching me like, um, yeah, so she's teaching me just how to like make collard greens. Um, and it's an impactful moment for me looking back a lot because um, like my grandmother is my definition of like femme, <laughs> like kind of, you know, unbounded by her like cis womanhood and all that stuff. Um, and it just feels really feminine and powerful to me to pick and cook greens. And my grandmother taught me that. Um, and so that would be a moment I want included. Hey, I am Marie Jensen. She, her pronouns. Um, I currently live in Seattle, um, but I run a Midwest 
um, trans non-binary youth organization focused on Missouri, Kansas, and Northwest Arkansas, so the Ozarks. Um, and we um, recently made a shift to specifically center and affirm trans young girls of color, as well as trans non-binary kids in survival mode. And we can talk more about sort of where that shift came for us as an organization a bit. Organizations based in Kansas City, Missouri, but um, I've been doing LGBT youth work for probably about 20 years now. Um, I started in St. Louis when I was a shelter kid myself and homeless. Then I went to Chicago. So I love Chicago folks, love BYP, like love you all so much. Do such fierce work. Um, I actually started at BYC. I helped build some of the initial programs and drop-in programs there. So I did a program called Real Talk, which was a harm reduction program for trans, um, well not trans, just like kids, LGBT kids in survival mode. And as a lot of folks know, when we work with kids in, um, who are living on the street or experiencing houselessness or homelessness, um, you get all types of kids. You get folks that aren't even LGBT identified there. And so um, it was really interesting because I like trans young girls whose boyfriends were like gang members in trade. And then it was like learning facilitation skills to like how, how you like intercept and, and work on that in ways that like you don't typically see that in like a white trans youth program, right? And so um, uh, I'm a light-skinned, multiracial trans uh, woman of color. So my dad is white, he's from the Ozarks, and my mom is Mexican. Um, and so I have really had the opportunity to, to navigate um, a spaces in ways that I feel like some of my sisters of color haven't, but also um, see all the, the, are we allowed to cuss on this? No? Okay, see all the shit that white people do, right? Like see all the ways that they play the games. Um, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation. I've been really looking forward to this. Oh, and film, video. Uh, I, should, I, I can't believe I forgot that. I'm a filmmaker too, so it's funny I forgot that. Um, there's so many, but I think that just like, it would be really good footage to like have me in Boy Scouts my middle school years in like rural Missouri with a bunch of like, country white boys that like three at least were secretly my boyfriends and I feel like they knew it they just wouldn't say it so I want to explore that more in film what an introduction hello I want to read and or view all of these like scenes and movies and documentary whatever whatever manifestation they would come in they all sound impeccable and like I don't know things that you're not seeing as much of and you definitely should so like I wanted to open with just like what does it look like when you hone in on what is powerful and meaningful to like TGQ young people when they're thinking about their life stories because you know even in my like framing and introduction you know there's a lot of shit like there's a lot of heavy stuff there's a lot of hard stuff and like we can you know oftentimes get into the rut of like here's the deficit here's the doom and gloom and like that's a big piece of it I don't think we should set it aside necessarily right but like how do you hone in on like the generative power of like what is joyful what is like heartwarming right like what feels good and like pursue that because the stuff that feels good is ideally going to upend the stuff that feels bad I think right so I appreciate you know y'all kind of humoring me and um you know offering that little snippet I love all of that so 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 much and I'm so glad to hear those anecdotes from y'all um I want to get into a bit more depth about, and y'all kind of covered this a little bit when talking about the organizations or projects that you're working with, um, is that, you know, each of your 
each of you work with projects or organizations that has the word youth um, either in the title um, or somewhere kind of in the mission vision right and so um you know i remember talking to romeo when i was like do you want to do this and they were like um what do you mean by youth and i was like you know that's a great question so it felt kind of uh apt to maybe bring it up here a little bit is just to see like for y'all, what does that mean either to you um, or how does that flavor you or your team's approach and how you're doing the work, right? I know, um, Marie, you had recently talked about, even in your intro just now, but you talked to, to me about how like even modifying the approach of uh, your organization caused like some contention, right? So I was curious if you wanted to kick us off with just like, what does it mean I'd to love do that? To. Yes. Oh yeah, geez. So, okay, so here's what happened, right? We're in Kansas City, Missouri, one of the epicenters of violence towards black and um, brown trans women of color. I personally worked on four of those murder cases with the police, with the community as a homicide advocate. We just had a serial killer in Missouri just get caught, like literally like a, a week and a half ago, he was going through killing women engaged in sex work and trans women, um, probably mostly trans women of color. We still don't know who he exactly killed because the police haven't released information. Um, and of course, they're probably going to dead name them and label them as men. Um, and what I see in my scope, in my lens, in the Midwest, um, I'm the founder of this organization, Transformations. It got founded in 2016 as a response to all of this violence and murder happening in Kansas City, Missouri. At the time, all of the organizations that were paid, staffed, were run by white cis folks. Um, I was um, kind of part of a group of people that kind of helped start some new programming, bringing staff of color on, specifically black staff um, and at different organizations. And uh, we created a three-day leadership summit for youth and for trans women of color to talk about resiliency and healing because so much, so much of the conversation around TDR is like, y'all should be dead or like you go through a lot of shit, like talk about that. And so we were like, let's talk about how we're fierce. Let's talk about the ways that we're doing stuff that's actually keeping us safe and how we can like foster that more. Um, and so we started an organization at the time that was very like, I think like a lot of like well-intentioned trans youth organizations, especially in the Midwest, it's like kind of a kumbaya of like, let's bring all the colors and people involved in all identities. And like, hopefully everyone's gonna get on the same page. And what we saw was that like, so we actually, as an organization right now, we have, I think the largest board and leadership of trans people of color in Missouri or Kansas. Um, it's pretty fierce. We have a lot of trans girls of color, trans women of color who've been part of our leadership. Um, what we saw was that for our white folks that were leading or helping or supporting, they really were not cool with like the conversation shifting to a racial justice lens even though it was always part of it. Like it was always part of the work we were doing. But when we got more and more explicit and also asking them to be like, hey, we need you to step up. Hey, as like white lead facilitators, as white trans leaders in the community, we need you to be talking about these things and not because you're like pushed and prompted to. It got a lot of pushback and retaliation. What we also saw is that when we had a general drop-in group for trans and non-binary young people, that was just kind of like a catch 22 for everyone. What we were having was we we're having a lot of young white trans non-binary kids coming. So we we're having like a lot of really affirming moms from like the burbs bring their kids and be like, you know, my 11 year old is non-binary and is, you know, assigned female at birth and needs a safe space. And does that child deserve safety? Absolutely, like totally. But what we were then seeing is that like, 
trans like femmes are certainly like trans girls, right? Like there were no dolls, right? Like they were not coming to the groups. And if they came, they might show up and then the group was dominated by sort of like white trans facilitation leadership at the time. And then white trans like masculinity or white trans boys. And they would show up and be like, okay, like, peace. Like this isn't for me, deuces, right? I'm out. And so like, we were like, we need to create something separate. So we created a trans young women's group that speaking of youth, we were like, so many of the girls can't even start to walk down the street and live their truth until they're a little older, right? You don't see like, I don't see like in Missouri or Kansas, like 12 year old, like Latina or black trans girls being affirmed in their schools, right? We start to see them when they're 16, 17 and they have a sense of autonomy. And in some sense, it's like, because when they start to present and identify, there's usually a threat of like being kicked out. The school is like, we're gonna kick you out. And so we were like, let's expand this idea of youth to 16 to 24 for young trans girls of color. And we were having that group going, it was thriving. And then COVID happened and shut us down. And what we learned is that from trans young girls of color, like they actually love Zoom. They love being able to like kiki and like be in their house and not have to walk down the street and worry about their makeup or worry about their, you know, if they shaved or not, what's going on with their body hair, worry about their hair. And like, there was a sense of safety that Zoom brought this group of young women that maybe for like white trans kids who are used to like a traditional school system and systems that say, we're going to support you. They're like wanting to be in person. So we made a shift. And when we made that shift publicly, we really lost a lot of our white support, period. Like trans and like cis folks supporting it. Um, and then there was like internal conversations about like me and like the women of color and how like we're divisive and we should just really just focus on trans issues and not race. And we're like, yo, like it's always been about both. And if you didn't see that, right, like sorry, we're being explicit now. Um, so it's been really interesting and I, I'm so excited to hear from Cody because it's been really interesting to organize um, in the Midwest, in Missouri, right? Like it's been interesting to organize and do this work. And I feel like right now, and I'm in Seattle, y'all. Sorry, I'm just gonna finish. I'm in Seattle, which is like, I feel like the epicenter of like white trans effery. So I'm seeing all sorts of like performative wokeness happen now where like all the white trans folks, everybody's non-binary. Oh my God, everybody's non-binary. I don't even know. I haven't even found the dolls, right? I'm like, where are the girls, right? I asked my sister, I was like, where are the girls? And it's like, gender is a construct, you know, like there's, we don't even have to be a girl. And I'm like, well, that's cute. But I went through a hundred thousand dollars of stuff to get here. So where are the girls, right? Like where are, where are we at? And so the concept I think has become dominated. I feel like our, our community and our, our uh, movement has been shifted and being led by white folks who are really policing language that's very elitist and academic who are saying, this is how you should be and this is how you shouldn't be and you can't say this and you can say that. I feel like the way organizing looks right now is really like the whiniest, fragile white trans person possible. And I would really love to see a lot of headbats. I would really love to just bring it back to like, who is being killed? Who is being murdered? Who is being raped? Like, are white trans non-binary folks having this happen to them? Absolutely. But is it happening in, in like waves like it is to black trans women and other trans women of color? No, 
Right. And so like having that real intentional focus, I think is so important and it has gotten lost, I think right now in this conversation. So that is what I have to say. Um, I'd love to hear from everyone else. Yeah. I mean, period. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, youth, yeah. Youth and Black Youth Project 100. It, Black Youth 100 started as a convening of young Black activists um, out of the University of Chicago. Um, shout out to Kathy Cohen. Um, and then a whole series of things happened at this convening, one of which was the Trayvon murder trial verdict, where Zimmerman was acquitted um, for executing Trayvon, a Black baby, a youth, a child, a little one, a little human, a little person, a little cute little baby. Okay, great. Um, and this was also, of course, during the Obama administration. So that's kind of like unique about its origin as well. Um, but youth in that context, I think, was coming from, I also described as like OG Black feminists. Like, I mean, right, like Barbara Ramsey's there, Kathy Cohen's, like these academic Black feminist heavyweights. Um, and we are youth to them, right? <laughs> like, we're like, like, we're like their kids. And so that's where kind of 1835 comes from. Um, and that was central to Kathy Cohen's research. But I also think, for me, like when I hear youth too, when I was a master's student at the University of Utah, yikes, um, talk about performative white progressive queers. Um, and I used to refer to the black undergraduate students as like the babies or the BSU babies. Um, and non-black people were always like, particularly non-Black academic people, because, you know, we're really concerned with not being paternalistic, right, with our students and all that other good stuff, were, was like, isn't that patronizing? Um, and it was funny to me because I was like, no, my grandmother called me her, her baby until she died. Like, I was like 26, when, you know, like, like, for me, like, that's a commitment to a group of people, right? It's not, right, like, I think non-Black people get all ripped up in that. Um, but I think when I think about youth, I think of that because, you know, 18 and 35 is a large age range. Um, and for me, what youth really means in the context of my work is, is really like anyone who is in need of someone just to hold them or a place to hold them. And that so much of youth is that so much of us, particularly in our context, what black, queer and trans like overwhelmingly black queer and trans people and women, like we don't get to have youth. Like we have to grow up quickly, quote unquote, whatever the hell that means, right? We have to take care of families. We have to navigate extreme violence, violence against us. You know, we have to, we form communities with each other at 12 that become our families and we parent and mother each other. And so I think youth in that context and around my own healing journey has taken on a different context as well that just feels important to point out. Um, and so, yeah, which also just reminds me that youth is relative. Like I'm old and BYP because I'm 28. Like that's old, <laughs> it's on the older end. Uh, I'm old nowhere else, right? Like there's nowhere else where I'm like, I'm like not old anywhere else. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about a lot too is like just how that fluctuates. Okay, that's it, I'm done. Um, I can go, sure. Um, so I, so in the kind of context of my organization, we serve people who are um, as young as 12 and as old as 24. Um, and uh, because like in the state of California, 
um, you can like consent for services at the age of 12. Um, and, you know, we, um, especially here in California, like they wanted to be super liberal and like really everyone has like autonomy and giving folks that autonomy. And I think that's really, like really great, right? But we also know that like when you hit 24, you're not an adult. Like I am 30 and still feel like a youth depending on who I'm with, right? Um, and the context that I am in. Um, and it's just always really interesting, um, especially when like um, we think about like young people and like how often young people are just kind of, or youth are seen as like um, these folks who like, like need the guidance or need uh, older folks to kind of like step in and like support them. And it's like, um, just kind of like what you were saying, RB, the kids are all right. And I say that so, I say that so much. The kids are all right. They are doing great. Like these little kids out here, they got better terms than I do. They teaching me shit that I don't know. Yep. You know, like I've been doing this for so long. It feels like, uh, and it's like, you know, embracing kind of like the voices of those young people, mm -hmm. which is really kind of like what, what is at the center of the work that I do with my organization or even in like my therapy practice um, is really kind of like what, what, what stands out when I think about like young people, I think about like the voices and like really the important shit that they often have to say that old, like older folks don't want to hear, you know? Yeah. And I'll add, um, a, a lot of my experiences with House of McCoy, which um, is still very new project, um, but a lot of what Marique said was on point, right? Uh, being in Kansas, um, being in Kansas, but I also think that this is everywhere, right? Um, we were very strategic when we started House of McCoy to um, include the thoughts of Black, queer, and trans folks, right? Um, and in, <laughs> in our town of the year, I think a lot of the white, queer, and trans folks are upset that they weren't consulted. <laughs> um, and they're upset that it doesn't naturally feel like it's theirs and it's for them or they're in some kind of ownership of it. Um, and so I find that uh, white queer and trans support is fleeing um, and mostly because they have no race lens. Um, and so it's fleeing. And then I would say um, because uh, House of McCoy is moving with also a, a, um, a race politic. Um, it has made a lot of the white people around here quiet and defensive and fragile. Um, and so I would say that we've done some really good work in terms of fundraising, which is a scam. <laughs> this is me just really learning about fundraising and all the stuff that goes into it. Because basically all that we do is um, put on the event or something and people will perform bank, right? Um, we'll definitely get someone that will say, you know what, I'm giving $50 to the House of McCoy. And that's certainly a person that has $500,000 or 5 million, right? But it's the performance of giving, um, but never ending the issues, right? 
um, even though many people have the resources for us to really start having those conversations, but they're going to hoard them. And so in this town with House of McCoy, um, we got some really good money in a month we got um, that we were very proud of, um, but that was mostly intra-community um, and it came from uh, 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 folks that don't always have a lot. Right. So I saw significant giving at $5, right, at $50, and that was um, um, a significant part of folks' budget, right? And so I'm proud of that money that we've raised. Um, but if we're being honest and if we're uh, being truthful, I would say the bulk of the white folks with resources and money is really just ignoring us. Right. Um, we even have a newspaper here, uh, the Lawrence Journal World, who has done no coverage of House of McCoy. Um, and it's the main newspaper in this community, and it's been in this community for I don't know how long. Um, but folks aren't willing to be truthful with what that is, right? That's anti-blackness to me, that's anti-trans, that's anti all sorts of things um, that the community um, does not call out. And so I mentioned community with this project because the community is so important in terms of where your project goes um, and, and if it's sustained, right? And so there's actually no doing this work without laboring in ways within the community, right? And um, with people who don't want to understand anything, right? And then it becomes this plea or this beg, which I'm not about to do. So um, I'll add one more thing. If I was uh, less queer, more cis, thinner, um, all of those things, uh, this house will be full. I'll have all of the money, right? White people love to be a part of things that make them feel good, right? So if I if I drop the race lens, all of a sudden we'll probably have tons of money uh, fundraised and we'll have tons of the resources and things that we need in our house for um, our youth. Um, and it's really knowing that and holding on to that, that um, the fragility um, doesn't allow them, um, or the way we speak, or the way we hold them accountable, it doesn't allow folks to hold on to the politic that allowed them to accumulate, right? Um, and so there's a big rub, there's a rub there um, in terms of whiteness and how white people participate. But I'll also say there is a lot of black and brown people who are playing in whiteness and who are heavily invested in whiteness and not interested in uh, losing their bag of money. <laughs> yeah, well, this also has me thinking about how like youth, who gets to be a youth is so racialized. Like, what is it? You know, I, I find the same thing in, in higher education. Like we say first gen to really mean like, poor whites but like no one just wants to say that <laughs> right no one just wants to say that so we say first gen and that was it becomes coded ass and who when we say queer youth pops up in our head as the image i think is really important because usually right i think it's like some conventionally attractive little gay white boy who runs away from their small town to run to the rural set right the like urban center like right like it's some like weird shit like that um and that's not so much of who we serve or who we are
Yeah, I was going to say, I've read plenty of those books and watched plenty of those movies. You can see that narrative all over the place. Um, and what I'm thinking of too, right, like as someone who's only ever lived in the Midwest, right, like uh, thinking about like how attention gets drawn to youth in this context, but like other pop like other under populations, if you will, when there's visible crisis without acknowledging that like there's ongoing crisis or there's ongoing like things right i think about you know romeo you talking about byp 100 kind of being formulated out of uh, work in in the aftermath of trayvon or right trayvon martin and that and that work um and how that was like a legible crisis versus like the work that Marika is talking about where you've got 16 to 24 year old trans girls of color, right. That are having all of these like, you know, daily material need, like crises of their own. Um, but that's not legible, right. Or Cody's work with house of McCoy, right. Like it's not legible in the way that like folks want to do the feel good funding. Whereas, you know, we saw in Minneapolis, for example, a lot of Minnesota based like social justice type organizations saw un unprecedented like sums of millions, like millions of dollars plopped into their accounts, which was well beyond their wildest dreams of money, but that they literally didn't know what to do with it at that point because they're like, cool. We didn't necessarily ask for this. Now we got to reconfigure our entire like game plan because we don't know what to do with this money. Meanwhile, you have other projects and other services and other, you know, groups that to Cody's point, right, are in this in this squeeze of like do I beg or do I like maintain my, you know, integrity here and not do that where, you know, where are folks' willingness to put resources or attention when it's not this big giant sounding alarm crisis when we are here talking about the fact that like there's ongoing daily things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I honestly, I hate to say this, but I do think you have to play the game a little bit. Um, I think if you want funds for your community, you have to. Um, and it sucks. Like I've been getting pushed. So I started an organization back in 2016. I'm still not the ED. Um, there's been a push to get me to become the executive director. And I literally was like, I don't want to be it. Cause I don't want to have to deal with like white, like white funders like that. And then our leadership kind of reminded me, they're like, but white people like that don't fund us anyways. Right. But you do have to play the game. I think in some sense, to like so for me like I think about who am I committed to and I'm committed to like young trans girls of color and I'm trying to think how do I get resources for them so if I cut myself off completely I won't be able to get them the connection for hormone replacement therapy I won't be able to get them the connection to um to folks that are giving away you know the free makeup or doing the free wig on install on this date at this month wherever um and so it's a tricky battle because we also have some older women in our community who, you know, they were the ones walking truce in Kansas city, like since they were 12 years old, you know, they've been living their life. And so they're, they're the real leaders of Kansas city. And a few of them are like very upset that things are not just given to them. And then when they're brought to the table, I think through their own pain and anger, it locks them out from people hearing them. 
And so it's difficult because I would I'd like to idealize that white folks would just care and white people would just be there. But I also feel like um, as leaders, when we're brought into the room, we have to put some of our trauma aside for that moment. Not forever, not forever, but we have to put it aside for that moment to play the game. If we want those dollars, you gotta be able to, 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 to say, we got to strategize and power map and think, how do we get there? And it may not have me to be dealing with that specific person, but the leaders and the trans women of color that I look to on a national level who are successful and who are doing the work know how to play the game. Um, and so I, I just feel like it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I feel like it requires though, a lot of community support in your free time, in your personal life to have you and to catch you and to take care of you because that shit is tiring and it is draining and it is traumatizing. Something that like is standing out to me, um, especially about what Cody said is like this performance of giving. Um, and like, even in like, you know, like large nonprofit organizations that have been around, like this org has been around for like 30 years and, you know, gets millions of dollars a year, but it's still like, you know, it, it, it is often a performance because it comes with, so many fucking restrictions that like I can't spend the money you know like I have like we run a housing program here where you know we help youth get housed and you know they give us you know a large sum of money to house young people but then I can't write checks to young people directly I gotta pay landlords or like a third-party vendor or like you know landlords don't want to take our checks because they have to sign a w-9 and be responsible for like those taxes and shit like that and like all of these barriers are like, you know, I, they got to have a lease if I give them money or like if we do stuff like that, they're like barrier after barrier. And then it's like at the end of the year, oh, you didn't spend all your money. Well, y'all didn't help us spend all our fucking money. You just gave us this money and like, you know, oh, we're doing great. But no, because you're just funneling money into an organization with all of these restrictions when you could be doing something like buying up some of these damn buildings that lay vacant in most of these cities, especially like the bay where the housing crisis is way too high for all the wealth in this like you know the city and the people who are in, who are impacted by that most are black and brown young people um and then you so you say like oh we stand out here for black and brown young people but like even with even knowing that like one percent of san francisco city budget and homelessness in this city y'all still ain't doing it so like you know it's it's this performance and then it's like you know, I'm, uh, we have a new executive director right now and I'm having conversations with her, like, why, do, why am, you know, and I cuss a lot, y'all, so I'm sorry, but like, why the fuck am I bending over backwards for these funders and doing all this shit so that we can have this funding that goes nowhere for us and does nothing for our young people, right? So, but now you want me to be out here <laughs> shucking and jiving for these funders um, who ain't getting us nowhere, you know? It's re it's really ridiculous. And so it's it's really hard to even want to play the game to get this and do these things for your organization to support these young people when it's like, well, I'm jumping through hoops and going nowhere anyway, you know? Yeah, I, I think I'll, um, I'm really thinking about uh, what Marik said and, I I totally understand and hold that you gotta be able to play the game for success. Um, and I try not to play the game and that's just um, my decision. 
Um, and again, what I talked about earlier, if I was thin, if I uh, was more cis, if I was more of those things, the game is different, right? Because you don't necessarily have to play a game, right? So if I was conventionally pretty, even in terms of my attitude or my politic, um, I would already have the connections I need and they would already still be in my life and they will be reaching out asking me if I need stuff, right? Um, but because I know that uh, playing the game takes so much energy and um, I was on the brink of living in 2020, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, and absolutely it makes white people scared it makes them uncomfortable they feel threatened and they will fight back um i guess what i'm using is just the truth right and um if folks are not ready to um be more conscious of how they're living and break their delusion um there's not a lot that I can do for that, right? And so with House of McCoy in general, um, I don't really want white money that much, right? If I had it my way, I would have black money and I would build up that those funds um, and be black run, black trans run, right? Uh, that way white people can't have expectations, right? They can't be wanting things to happen. We're not using your funds. Um, but I think that it's, you got to be careful when you open that door uh, to saying, you know what, you can help, even though that I know that you are anti-Black, right? I know that you're anti-ableist, because these are the people that want to help or will help or have the resources to help, right? You have to make a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost allowances for them. Um, and I just think that we need more. <laughs> we need more. And perhaps it needs all of us, right, to be going at it in different ways. But what I've learned in my time is that um, if you're not likable, it's going to take so much more work to get things done. But not likable is beyond your politic, right? It really has things to do with desirability politic and all those things. And so the labor, like what we talked about, is like overwhelming, right? Because you're navigating so many things happening at once and you're trying not to lose yourself in it, right? And that is, that, that is a trick. That takes some work and that takes being strong and stealth in your politic. Um, that takes um, um, very little support right um it um and for me in my position i feel hyper visible um and unsafe because of that right um and so and the target and it's just so much to have to hold and make sense of that again there's no right way of doing it there's just that where you can also survive, right? Because in my politic, I've also put my life in the center, which hasn't always been the case. And that changes my decisions and how I move. 
And specifically, I move much slower with House of McCoy because I'm not white time. I'm on whatever time I'm on. So if Cody is not feeling well and having a depressed episode, then that meeting's getting canceled. Whatever that project was, it can be pushed back and we can move it to later. Um, because the role modeling of uh, keeping yourself in the center for specifically black and brown queer trans folks is so very important. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's so much, um, yeah, it, you know, I joked, I continue to joke around how, like, you know, people all of a sudden cared about Black people last summer during the uprising two summers ago now, and, you know, lots of Black works got flooded with millions of dollars, and, um, yeah, and we know, like, this country, non-Black people love to watch Black people die and then respond to it. That's ongoing, right? Like, you know, you know, whether it's lynchings or like the police videos now of shootings, um, non-Black people love, to, love that, love to watch us suffer with no concern for how it lands on us. And I think orgs who got a lot of money during that time are in a moment to actually center joy and pleasure and happiness and rest in their work because lots of those orgs got millions of unrestricted dollars as well, right? So unrestricted funds were also flying from some heavyweight funders. Because um, in my experience, you know, wanting to fund like things that involve agency and fun is not sexy <laughs> for people, right? Like, you're like, no, I just want to like, get these kids together and like have a makeup party. <laughs> like, you know, but people don't want to pay for that, right? That's not viewed as important. That's not viewed as survival and I think that's once again part of the white class classist notions that underline youth work and what matters right having the makeup to beat your face matters right like and if you don't want to fund that it's not viewed as something that is measurable um one of the ways BRP100 works if and if within and around that is through like membership dues, is through resource mobilization, through chapter work around campaigns or staffing needs. And it's unperfect. And I also think, you know, everybody resonating with Cody is saying around like, you know, you got to find what you feel okay doing or feels right and ethical aligned with who you are. Because um, there's some brilliant resource mobilized people who get money from these big funders. Well, I'm like, girl, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you got through the meeting. Um, and I never could, right? And I think likability is really, you know, because I think Cody and I, we have very similar politics. Um, and I do them, and I do more publicly, right? I do the most publicly. Um, and that has not restricted my ability to do lots of things, right? Like, it just, like, hasn't, right? Like, like yeah, there's some hating ass bitches, but when you a bad bitch, that's gonna happen. But, you know, overwhelmingly, right, we're not received the same. And I just think, once again, never got to use, like, that's so true about youth and my, and my own trajectory as, like, a Black queer child who's always had a smart mouth and kind of been doing the most. Um, there was something about the way a bunch of non-Black people viewed me as worthy still through that, that a lot of Black queer youth don't get to experience. And I think, like, that's the missing piece even, maybe to speak... Like, to directly to other Black people is around like how even our own 
Blackability, desirability, proximity to whiteness, right? Like proximity to all those things, how we can be seduced by that and, and decenter actually the most marginal in our work. Um, because it's seductive. And I don't trust any person who says whiteness isn't seductive, capitalism isn't seductive. Like, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, I'm like, we live, like, we live in this planet, like, yeah, whiteness is seductive, girl. It looks chill. Like, it looks, I would love to be able to walk around with no concern about anything but myself. And, right, and my two little white children. Like, that sounds nice. But, like, you know, like, what is, like, what are you talking? So, anyway, so I think, like, part of that around the funding, the centering, how we do or don't tokenize our youth. Uh, two, yeah, I literally almost went back and said 2.5, but I was talking about the joke ride. Um, right, but that, you know, because I was even tokenized, okay, last piece. I was tokenized as a young queer youth of color as well for funders, right? And I mean, this is through my experience with young people for, through my experience with Campus Pride, through my experience, I mean, you know, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, Northern Illinois University, the University of Utah. I mean, right, we can go on and on, right? Like, you know, Encore, all these places, right? Like, you know, all these places have tokenized me to leverage funders, right? Because, you know, it's cute when like the cute little sassy Black queer comes to the meeting and can talk the way you want. And so another question for me is like how we avoid that, right? Because telling my story could be from a place of agency, but it wasn't a lot in those contexts, right? It was a lot of like, well, because this funder paid for you to be here, go talk to them so the next Black can come. <laughs> like, so yeah, so yeah, uh, okay, great. I, uh, I, I think we're, I, I don't want us to move on before we miss this piece because what we didn't do is um, hold Black and Brown queer and transphobic people accountable, right? We're talking about whiteness and folks like that, um, which most often I'm talking about black and brown support and things like that, right? I'm gonna censor them in that way um, because laboring for white people has uh, gotten me nowhere and broke <laughs> and depressed and, and anxiety disorder, right? And I believe that those things, will happen and could happen working with black and brown folks too however my love is different and my uh level of participation in their lives look very different than white folks and we need to talk about uh these phobias within our communities um because at the end of the day um it is anti-black to be anti-trans right um, and having those conversations within our community, I think it is very important, right? And so my hopes for the House of McCoy, even though we're in a, a pretty white-centered place in Lawrence, Kansas, um, is to really search for the black and brown youth that's out there. Um, but it's also taking the, um, the framing of uh, putting blackness in the center as we talk about queer and transphobia and utilizing our social media in very particular ways to where the reach is beyond this community. Um, and the reach is specific to black folks, right? Um, because I think we need to have that conversation. I think the conversation is happening, right? Specifically as we think about the Dave Chappelle stuff that's happening. Um, which lets us know that <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done within our communities. 
Um, but I also think about the, the work and the labor that is not given to black and brown folks and black and brown communities, right? And so what does it mean to censor them in our education? And, and actually, those are the people we're pushing and poking, right? Again, white people are there. White people, I have not figured out what makes them move or do anything. So I'm not betting on that. Um, but I'm going to work with these black and brown folks, um, specifically black folks, um, um, in terms of the work that we're doing, we're going to center black folks. And so what does it mean to have that conversation in black homes, right? What does it mean to have that conversation um, with black leaders and communities? What does it mean to have that conversation? I would never do this, <laughs> but maybe with church leaders, I would. But still, I mean, uh, bringing the conversation to the community, I think it's actually really important right now um, and moving past the education of white people. I think uh, there's so many themes and so many pieces and I feel like we could have like a whole part two specifically engaging around like tactic and like calculated choices or like a lack of feeling like there's choices right like just the whole the whole you know uh, accumulative reality of labor that is not seen um right like i think all of y'all do front-facing programs of some variety and what does that look like what does the not front-facing part look like all the calculated choices all the networking all the discussions all the text messages all all the things that you're kind of referencing are stuff that like is not visible right the conversations with exec directors about pandering or not the conversations about whose funding is coming like just all of those calculated choices when you know it all some it all summates to like needing these things, the need, right, Bishop, right? The need is there, the want is there, the survival need is there, right? All these things. Um, so just like wanting to, you know, acknowledge that like there's unseen labor that is just very much unacknowledged in the, in working with youth or being a young person doing um, work for, you know, uh, black and brown youth or, uh, you know, any of this constellation of work we're talking about. Um, and some of the other pieces that I, I, I caught that brought up, were brought up from other folks, right, is concepts of agency and autonomy and what does choice look like. And so I did want to um, pull up one of the, the prepackaged questions, um, just because I really love to invoke um, authors as, a, as an avid reader, right? And so what I had offered to y'all um, ahead of this space, right, was wanting to uh, bring up a quote from Bell Hooks's book, All About Love. Um, where there's this whole section, right, where she talks about how are we essentially teaching children the concept of love, and her definition of love is very particular, right, where it includes um, kind of six components beyond just like amory and, um, you know, pleasure, right, it's respect and trust and other elements, right, how are we modeling um, and bringing children into um, communities or cultures of care and love, right? And so the quote specifically um, that I'd pulled from that portion, right, was quote, when we love children, we acknowledge by our every action that they are not property, that they have rights, that we respect and uphold their rights. Um, and I wanted to kind of engage with y'all a little bit around, A, anything that is evoked from 
that quote. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's read the book. So if there's other components you'd like to bring into the space, for sure. Um, but ultimately, right, like, how does this relate to experiences you've had or that you've already talked about? Um, in what ways maybe are TGQ youths like agency and autonomy inhibited, right? How does this play into what we've talked about so far when we talk about agency and autonomy um, and consent, any, any of those elements? Um, I think what's like coming up for me um, is really like when I think about um, like the ways that like youth um, are expected or there are expectations laid on youth of how they should behave or how they should interact with like adults and, and like positions of power and respect and parents and really just kind of like, you know, it don't matter what this young person think, I'm the parent, I'm the adult and they're gonna have to do what I tell them to do. They're gonna have to respect me because I'm their parent or, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, it, just those acts in general really just kind of demean youth into this kind of like space of just of being an item, right? Like, no, it don't, it don't matter how I feel because you, you feel disrespected. And that's all that really matters in this sense. It don't matter that like, I actually am very harmed by the way that you said this, or I'm actually very uncomfortable. Or that I actually don't understand, you know, what it is that you are trying to tell me or trying to ask me to do, but it don't matter. What I care about don't matter because you see that what I said is disrespectful or, you know, as I am not bowing down to the power that is you adult or you person in power or even just like person at this agency, right? Um, and it, it's really, we kind of like start to um, really kind of pigeonhole youth as like these things that need to be saved and that like anyone who does not feel or fall into that youth category and whatever you're serving um, is the savior and that they cannot do these things without us when in reality, most of us in the organizations or nonprofit work are gatekeepers and just like, you know, are here to like open the door for young people to go through. Um, and I just feel like even just these, these systems just remove that agency or the individuality or the voice from young people in general. Yes, to all of that. Um, I don't have this fully thought out, but I'll just throw it out there. I just, it just feels that, um, um, not feel, white supremacy is anti-youth, right? Um, and I don't know, like even thinking about uh, the things Bell Hooks listed, um, how those things happen without addressing white supremacy, right? Um, specifically thinking about uh, your child having agency, right? Um, what we know specifically in, in the black community is that a lot of that is taken away so they can survive, right? And so um, if that's taken away, um, what stops black children from being killed, right? If they're not following these specific rules, um, and so I think, yeah, I don't know how you do this without white supremacy uh, being addressed because people are still living in their delusions, 
right? White people don't even talk to their children about these things, right? Until they it comes up in school, in the institution, in very wrong ways, um, right? And so for me, I, I, I think I feel that more as aspirational. Um, and I feel like it's a grand statement, um, not addressing all of the roadblocks. I don't know if that makes sense. I'll think about it a little more. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, I think children are perhaps the most oppressed group of people in the world, just as a as a group. Like, I mean, you want to talk about no legal protection. I mean, like, you know, like children have no rights in this country. Like, it's actually it's wild. Like, um, and it's also wild that magically at eighteen we turn this switch right in, and so it's wild that way. Um. I think I would say mostly white people turn to switch if you think about that. Yes. Well, and I was going to say too around childhood that, um, and I think Cody, like you were hinting this around, like black survivability depends on like black children doing all kind of shit, like right, like you know, like for ourselves or with ourselves. You know, grandma gotta, everybody gotta go to work, come home, make yourself a snack. You know, all the, all these sorts of things. Um, that for me is still the sense of agency, even at like a seven-year-old walking home from school along, like that there are just certain ways, the things that we just, I mean, right, we were just like poor Black people, like, um, and it wasn't actually special, like I remember I got to college and I was telling people like me and my siblings would be home alone a lot um, when we were like elementary school and that would stress them out because whatever, um, they couldn't be left alone so they were like 18, um, <laughs> like whatever, like it's just weird stuff like that, but that there's something about, I think, the way that we just, the, like, if we truly love children, if we love Black and trans youth, um, what, like, I think there's a bunch of structural things that needs to happen, but at the root of it, I think it's when I started to feel a sense of agency that I can make choices, um, and that systems have a way of shifting the barometer of what actual danger and safety is for us as we, and sadly we teach youth, right, to fall into that same pattern, right? So for like black academics, like not being called by a title and not getting tenure is like the worst thing in the world. That's like not the worst thing in the world. Like black young queer and trans people are dying, right? Like, you know, like actually like not getting the job isn't the worst thing in the world not getting the promotion is not the worst thing in the world. And, you know, I part of that feels like my own personal working responsibility is to remind people of that. Because I think what I also hear Cody say too is around like, there's a way that I think a certain section of Black people in higher education have not been mobilized around this project and around support in ways too that I find concerning. Um, and what is that about? Like, I think it's all the things we've talked about, right? Likeability, who your work centers, why you center them. It's not usually marketable and packaged and sold as like a rescue of these youth in danger. When you say, no, we're just trying to provide a little container for them to be themselves and invoke their agency. So those are the collection of random thoughts in my head at the moment. <laughs> like, um, yeah, and uh, okay, I'm actually gonna stop talking. Cause I was about to do another thing. Y'all know me. I was about to do another thing.
Go ahead, girl. I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I just was listening to y'all talk. I feel like so much of what you're saying, um, I didn't want to like water it down because I feel like you're talking about a really specific thing about black youth. Um, and, and, and I just wanted to like give space for that. Um, I was going to say something earlier. It's totally off topic, but I just wanted to say this. So, you know, I spent, I spent like almost 20 years living as like, I self-identified as this. So I'm going to say this word as a faggot, right? Like I was, was really, um, and I still love that word. Oh, I love it's that a great word. word. It's such a good word. But you know, white people hate that word. Oh my God. You want to no, they do. They do. Okay. So I, um, and actually that's how I met our, that's how I met uh, folks organizing this was, um, and RB was, was, was doing my documentary series, 50 Faggots, which was following 10 self-identified effeminate gay men in Chicago, New York, and DC for four years. So longitudinal ethnographic study. The point with that was that um, I remember when I was, like this little light-skinned brown sissy, like pumping up and down New York and in DC and Chicago and like feeling some, like some of the ways that y'all are talking, like I never fit like with the man box, never fit like I was, felt like I was masculine. It, like just the conversation of manness didn't work for me, but I was like, I always heard that like trans people had to like hate their bodies like you you had to have such visceral distaste for your body right and I was like you know I like mostly it's fine like it's like I'll eat it right you know it's like that sort of thing and um I remember like having conversations with people and especially when I got to like when I left Chicago because I was in Chicago for 10 years when I left Chicago and I went back to Missouri and I was in St. Louis for a bit and then Kansas City for a while um conversations around race and racism and identity like did not hit like white gay ears at all like it got brushed aside it was like really dismissed um there was a lot of white fragility and then I transitioned and I identified as a woman like obviously I identify as a woman now um like if I'm not giving that I feel like I failed um <laughs> but uh but people listen to me more. Like, so there is something about like having a gender presentation that is threatening. Now I'm not gonna go on a limb and say that I feel safer overall. I don't think that, but I do think that I can get into doors easier now than I could when I was like, kind of people were like, what are you? Like, what's going on here, right? Why, like, what are you committing to? What have you not committed to, right? And so I think even as organizers and as doing this work, I feel like where we're so put into binaries, um, there is truth. And, and I just wanted to sort of like uplift you all, I feel like in some ways to say like, I wanna like affirm that and say, I see that because I spent a lot of time in a like femme, you know, like male esque male esque body, and now I'm you know navigating in a different way. Um, and while you know the reality is that like it's almost like when violence happens now, it just happens. Like it's like they're like you're gonna get killed or you're gonna get raped, or you're gonna get beat up. But like I don't feel I feel like funders and people are way more willing to listen to me because I feel feel like I'm just way more conventionally attractive, and I feel like they can understand what's going on. Like they're like oh you committed, like you did it. Right. And so 
Um, I think that's unfortunate because when we talk about our young people, so many of them are not committing, right, to a specific binary gender, right? They are like on that journey and they're going to stay on that journey. My favorite kids have always been like the like the, you know, the like femme, the femme, you know, assigned male at birth person of color in like high school who's in like, you know, who's in like alternative school with like the Janet Jackson, like big old 80s earring cross and, you know, the black converse and like the black lipstick. And they're just like, you know, like all of you suck. I'm like, oh my God, I love that kid. Bring that kid here. That is my child. Like, I love that child, right? Like, I feel like so often as children are developing and going on their journey, they're going to explore all types of gender. And it's when they don't confine, and I talk about this a lot as a, as a DEI trainer consultant, when they're not sticking within a binary notion of gender, that's where people have real issues with it, right? They're like, why can't you just do this? Why can't you be this or this? Um, and so I uh, just wanted to say, it's so interesting as like organizers and as leaders here to hear you all talk about like access, because I just wanted to say like, yeah, I see that and I want to affirm that like, um, I think for some of us on our journeys, when people can't understand what's going on or they don't agree with it or they get pissed off at it, because also like what Cody's saying, it's not just like white folks too, right? Like are like the people we're looking for love and romance and connection with. And like, if we're looking in like gay communities our queer male communities um, can be very toxic. Oh my God, they can be toxic. Can we just, that's a whole separate conversation, but they are so toxic. So like, um, just wanted to affirm that as well and share all those. I wasn't sure at first because I had to, I had to step away for a second. I was like, what word are we talking about? And I was like, yes, now, now I remember. <laughs> it's like, there's many options and I missed a key piece of information. Um, something that I'm thinking about is just uh, the notion of protection, right? And thinking about like how in most senses, there's not necessarily a need for protection because that breeds paternalism, that can breed savior complexes. Um, but to like Romeo's point, right? Like if we're talking about the concept of rights in a more like electoral politics sense, right? There's not a lot of actual protections, like things in place codified that say like, you can't do this stupid shit to like young people. You can't do this, these things, these violent things to trans folks. You can't do these disgusting things to communities of color, right? Like you can't, like that you cannot. And I don't mean like hate crime legislation because that's its own messy jumble of stuff. But like, I even like, so this whole thing, right? Says like protect trans youth. And I was like, do I wear this today? Because since I bought it, my politic has changed. And I'm like, I don't know that I mean that. But knowing again, like, as I said in the beginning that we're seeing like legislative tactics in like a, a legislative policy type way, right? I think in that sense, there's some protections or some push um, that maybe applies in that arena, which is not the most important arena. I don't believe that electoral politics or electoral, yeah, is like necessarily the pathway to liberation, but like it's a big roadblock at the moment that needs some attention. Um, and I'm reminded of this journal article I read a long time ago that literally used the the word it was one word women and children in italics like they clustered it as one word because it was talking about how the language around women and children right is 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 used to justify anti-trans policy right it's to protect women it's protect children 
but it's not protecting trans children. It's not protecting trans women. So um, it was even talking about how like that's used at like an imperialist level, right? It's been used to justify like warfare and like missile attacks, right? That we're trying to protect women and children in other countries. Um, so I was really fascinated by that piece. Um, and I, uh, yes, <laughs> Marie, do you wanna, I see we're in our private chat, but did you wanna uplift what you just <laughs> mentioned? Cause I think it's yeah, prevalent. I think it's, I think it's just a great time to look at if you're doing youth work, right? what frameworks are you working from? So I, I, I just, at this point across the board for transformations, we don't work with people on a collaborative organizational level. If their youth pro programs projects don't work, I, I would say honestly from, ideally from, from five frameworks. So we work from five frameworks, we work from more than that, but like we work from anti-oppression, most specifically anti-racist. We also work from harm, um, from trauma-informed care, which every white social work woman loves to talk about. Um, so like everyone can do trauma-informed care and not be anti-racist, right? Like it's like, believe survivors, except, you know, like if they're like a black gay man, right? Then like, no. So it's like, like there's specific things that have to happen in order for all of it to combine to make sense. So anti-oppression, um, anti specifically anti-racist, trauma-informed care, positive youth development, so PYD, right? So like um, letting youth lead, create programming, design, design your logos, design what the space feels like, you know, like giving their input, have, paying them stipends for their leadership as much as possible. Um, and then the two for me that feel like really non-negotiable are harm reduction, so like if someone's doing a program and they're like doing this like safe safer if they're doing like a safe sex or abstinence only thing obviously we're not working with them if they're like giving really like specific like messages around um people who use substances and they're like you know don't do drugs sort of stuff which you can still find a lot of that in the midwest especially in traditional school systems we're not working with them right i mean we will like we'll we'll let them know about our programs so they can refer in but we're not going to collaborate with them on some sort of like events if they don't work right if there's judgment around um young people who do sex work um we're not working with them um we have to have a lot of conversations right now in the midwest about sex work and harm reduction around sex work and the judgments around sex work and, um, you know, every little white girl is put on that poster of being trafficked, you know, in the shadows. We all know the image. You know, she's like this, right? Like, that's the image that they have out there about the trafficked youth. It's not, frankly, a trans kid of color. We know that trans kids of color are highly disposable in this country. When we think about kids that are not protected and kept safe, it is LGBT youth of color and specifically trans non-binary kids of color, where people are like, we're already going to hell, you're already deviant. So nobody cares what happens to you. So then we have the school to prison pipeline being built, but we also have things like these kids are literally gone. And when they're gone, they're either trafficked or they're killed. Um, and so we saw that a lot at BYC, you know, back in like the early 2000s with what was happening with youth of color. Um, but then the other framework that we have is a transformative justice. So having a conversation explicitly about um, what is your relationship with law enforcement? How are you using law enforcement within your services and programs? When there's a fight with kids, are you calling the police? Do you as staff know how to de-escalate that without ever having police or you know the criminal injustice system inter intervene? Because um, we know that that is only just going to further traumatize. And we also know that systems like DFS, you know, our DCFS, Children's, uh, Children's Services, 
different states is highly problematic, is highly unsafe for trans kids of color. So we're trying to constantly think about who has a, at least a similar lens that we can partner with. And that gets really hard in places like Missouri or Kansas. But um, I would encourage folks and, and organizers watching this to really invest, if you don't, into some harm reduction programming, into some transformative justice training. Um, and yeah, what I shared in the chat, what chat was just that like, the criminal, you know, people who work from a harm reductionist and transformative justice practice will say the criminal injustice system doesn't work. It's not going to keep trans people safe. Um, I mean, it, it has never, I mean, the whole, the whole hate crimes, National Hate Crimes Act, when I was working on the homicide cases was a joke. We've never had somebody who's actively gone to murder trans women of color, black trans women. Like I think maybe once or twice have they actually been prosecuted federally for a hate crime, right? It doesn't work. When it actually is LGBTQ anti-violence, um, that, that law actually doesn't go into effect most often um, and it's not prosecuted. So there's a lot of things that are given to us that we're sort of supposed to swallow and believe in that actually are not put into practice our play. I'll, I'll say that um, I've also divested from a lot of whiteness in general and specifically um, organizations and at some point even politics and politicians. Um, I've not heard anything that was helpful to black people in general. Um, white people are not willing to do much. Um, white people, um, they will come up with every reason in the world to not do something, or they will leverage every policy and procedure to not do something. And it feels like, um, um, RB as these um, this legislation is coming out, um, I I almost engage it like a game, like it's just for sport, right? Because very rarely are any of them talking about truth. Um, and so I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't be concerned with what's happening. Um, in all those particular spaces, but I am saying that um, we have to create some new ways, right? Um, I'm thinking about uh, as we raise money, I also know that there are black billionaires, right, who have been quiet, who have said nothing, who are not doing much, right? And so I'm also thinking about how do I engage those communities and those people um, because I already know, I mean, at the core, we already know what white people are going to say and do. That's one of the gifts of black and brown queer and trans folks, particularly black queer and trans folks, is that we've learned the ways that white people move to keep us safe, which also means that whiteness is predictable. Um, and we'll very rarely do the right thing. And so to put so much emphasis on it, um, I just wonder if that just wears us out, burns us out. Yeah, I, you know, I, I just think at a fundamental level, right? Like this nation is never gonna care for me or the people I care about, like just ever. And, you know, I, um, 
you know, I think as long as we are, and I say we as like a broader movement, focus time and resources towards reforms, right? I think the more harmful it is. Um, it's, you know, it's also hard, like, you know, a lot of funding and raising money. Like, you know, when you create a proposal saying like, you know, your ultimate goal is to end the US government, which should be our goal for lots of reasons. Um, you know, people aren't really drawn to that. You know, <laughs> like that doesn't really speak to people, but that's what just needs to happen, right? Like that's the simple fact, like the nation state needs to end. Like, you know, this is unsustainable. This is terrible for a host of reasons. And, um, and I won't reduce it to a generational gap that I think lots of people do reductively. Um, but right, but I do think it's something about like, do you believe, or do you wanna be a part of this democracy or not? Like, you know, this is something in my own research I think about, like, why would I want to be represented in the US government? Like, you know, like, I actually don't want that. I actually don't want a black child to become president. Like, that's weird. Like, why would I want a black child to become a war criminal? Like, you know, so these are like, I think fundamental message when we work with youth that go unexamined right around all this aspirational shit. Like, you know, you can be the next basketball player. Actually that child more like most likely can't be and that's okay. Like we need other dreams, right? Like we need other things. <laughs> like, you know, like, but it's weird cause those things once again, don't, you know, I'm working with them. I mean, right, like BFP 100 is an organization that believes in transforming systems, right? Like we are abolitionists, right? Cops gotta go. You know, we have not explicitly extended that to the nation state, so I won't speak on that. <laughs> but like, right, we do think cops gotta go, right? The police got to go, because the police don't keep us safe, right? Police don't keep black, queer, and trans youth safe, right? Like, these are things we also just know. So, you know, I think if we need more evidence that people are gonna do what they wanna do, is like, we actually have all the research in the world around like this particular thing, yet so many LGBT organizations refuse to explicitly be abolitionists, right? Because, right, that puts all kinds of things in danger. So, so I mean, I don't know what we do with all that. Um, you know, I, I, I one time asked like Stacey Ann Chan, like how, you know, she was teaching her daughter to, to do all kind of beautiful, bold shit, you know, that black girls get in trouble for doing. And I was like, don't you feel afraid, like, for your child? Like, like, how do you, like, you know, because I was trying to figure out for myself at the time. And she was like, there's worse things in this world than dying. And there's many ways to die. Um, and I think about that a lot. Like, is the work I'm doing just slowly contributing to a form of death or not? And I think that's the real hard question. And, like, how we don't project our own fears or insecurities onto the youth we work with and really allow them to construct their own futures in reality. Because I think we're actually gonna get free by listening to children. Because toddlers are great. Toddlers are the best. Like they're gonna get us free if we like act like toddlers because they're unapologetic about their needs and their thoughts and their feelings. And I like that. Um, all of that. <laughs> I, I, I think, and this is from my personal experience, um, um, that if we're not careful, um, the way this system is set up, particularly for, uh, for us, for Black trans folk, is um, it will have you working in every area, trying to fight for your humanity, 
right? You'll be fighting at your job. You'll be fighting at your church. You'll be fighting at the store. You'll be fighting the government. You'll be fighting your senator. You'll be fighting your own family. You'll be fighting all of those things. And I think what's important for us to also role model and state explicitly that it is okay for you to carve out time for you to live, right? And you're not responsible to or for anyone but to live because so much of our lives is labor. I think that that is like kind of like such a perfect way to kind of like wrap up a lot of this shit. Let kids live, just let them live. Uh, they they know, the, half the time they know what they want. They know what they need. Um, let, let kids live, listen to them. Um, and like, that's how you, that's how you align yourself with like queer and trans young people. Listen to them, like, and let them tell you what they need and what they want to do and how to do it. Look at you, look at you leading, leading us into the taper off here. Look at you. <laughs> um, uh, yes, right. I, I, I love, I love that. I love all of this, right. Thinking about a lot of things, but also watching the clock and wishing that we had like many more hours of this because this has been majestic, but I, I, you know, I think something that I've personally learned through this pandemic, especially right. Is that even if you're not working with children specifically, like, um, and like, appealing to adults, if that's what we're really considered in this space, because that feels fake, right? Appealing to folks' childlike inclinations, especially when they're in crisis, right? Do you need food? Do you need a break? Do you need someone to carry this for you, right? Like I think in this, in this, this era of grief that is related to COVID, that is related to, you know, all the other ickiness that impacts queer and trans people broadly and specifically, right? Like there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of ways that folks can lift folks out of that by again appealing to folks' childlike inclinations because sometimes you don't know how to articulate your needs um and you go nonverbal right so like how do you how do you input some thought around if i was working with a seven-year-old not to like infantilize any of us right but like if someone's really going through it if you, if you had a seven-year-old that you were working with but that person's actually 27 years old right what does that seven-year-old need because at that moment they they are maybe you know operating in that way and just how do we kind of think about the same ways we apply supporting young people who maybe have less resources tools and agency because of the impacts of systems um, and figuring out what we can offer um, to them. Well, and I, and I think there's something to be said actually about trans and non-binary folks. When we come out and we really start to present and own who we are is that developmentally in some ways we are still young. Like we are still starting that journey. Um, a lot of us have been stunted from really important childhood developmental lessons because we didn't get those. We didn't have often the first dates, we didn't have the first kisses, we weren't affirmed constantly in school for being like, you look great, you look awesome. Like we had lots of messaging that there was something wrong with us. Um, and so you see that play out within trans communities. You'll see someone, you'll be like, why is like, why is this like, you know, 45 year old trans woman dressed in like, she's like, why is she all up in Hello Kitty gear? They're like, cause she probably didn't have a childhood. You know, like she didn't have that fantasy, let her live her fantasy, okay? So like, that's the kind of stuff I feel like people forget is that like straight cis folks have been given the privilege to navigate and make mistakes and have communities around them support and say, you know, have like life lessons taught to them by older mentors and by, by um, you know, guidance counselors and stuff. So I feel like we just need to allow 
also there to be, um, I think most trans non-binary people have an ugly duckling stage, have an awkward phase where like we come into it, you know, we look back and we're like, ooh, you know, like that, that makeup was not working, right? Like, or whatever, like you learned how to like pick what, what worked for you and how to sort of finesse it. And I think there's nothing more beautiful than watching a trans young person or non-binary young person, um, like fine tune themselves, you know, like really own who they are and really like get their swag, get their strut, get their charisma, get their confidence and just own it. Um, and that takes time. That's not going to happen overnight. I want to do a quick shameless plug because that reminds me of um, the Institute did a podcast episode. It's our third episode. It's about like queer aging and queer death, because I don't know if this was an experience for y'all, but um, one of my co-conspirators on the Institute team, like we both had been told like early on in college that like once you reach 30, that's like gay death. Right. And so we unpacked like, why did we hear that? Because we both grew up in like different you know places of the midwest region and so then we get into kind of a um you know deep dive into like uh messaging that we received about life prospects and then we have someone who's uh studying to be a death doula talking about like how do we create communities of care about like trans folks and what does it even need to be a trans elder so shameless plug that folks should maybe if you're interested check out um our podcast which is called take the last bite um where we do talk about some generational stuff in episode three and there's i think we have six episodes up now um including the recording of last year's teach-in which was called the rise of a trans abolitionist vision so if you missed out on the teach-in last year um the recording is up on the podcast uh episode list wherever you listen to podcasts um so I, again, I could do this for hours because I love hanging out with all of y'all in general. And I don't know that I've ever been in space with more than two of you at once at the same time. Um, but uh, I do want to move us towards wrapping up. Um, so I just want to um, make space for y'all to maybe offer a soundbite of final thought, either around um, any parting words about how you think folks um, could best be in alignment with TGQ youth um, and how that can be done in a way that doesn't deny their agency um, or literally anything else you want to say for the good of this fantastic conversation. Yeah, um, I'm going to leave folks with a question because that's what I do now on panels. Like, that's just what I do now. <laughs> um, I'm wondering what world would be possible if we truly honored the agency experience and beauty of Korean trans youth of color. Anyone else? I see Bishop doing this. You kind of, you made a good ending proclamation. Yeah, I have some space for people watching. <laughs> donate, support everyone's work here. You use that, especially if you are not a trans person of color, donate for real. I know that you might've paid your like five to, to $25 or more potentially registration fee but you know what like pay that forward i mean that's the thing like we're like the funding we've heard so much conversation today about funding so um check out our work and hopefully that will get dropped and the links will get dropped but support this work you have those giving tuesdays coming up you have your black friday sales you have the buy black literally movement happening on friday so make sure that you are uplifting and supporting trans people of color specifically black trans folks in this work um so support it i think what i'll throw out there is let go of this notion that you have to understand um in order to be helpful and move forward 
right? Um, um, you most likely won't understand as it has not been your experiences or narratives or, or, or your living, right? Um, you don't need to understand something in the moment to know that there is a problem and you are responsible to that problem. Right. And so if you're holding on to, well, I don't understand this or this and this and this, um, ask if those things that you don't understand, right, how does that work with uh, queer and trans folks dying? Right. How do you hold those things? Um, so you know there should be some things that are done. And I also give that to uh, Black queer and trans folks, right? Um, you don't have to understand yourself in many ways, right? Just allow yourself to be and navigate and figure it out as you go if you have the privilege to do that, right? Not everyone has the privilege to do that. Um, but give ourselves grace. We don't have to know it all to know that something is wrong, right? I feel like I'm just stalling or this is really this is what a Midwest goodbye looks like this is what this actually is um so again just so much deep appreciation for all of y'all's wisdom and vulnerability just by sharing some of these personal anecdotes and stories and sharing space here um I've loved every moment of this and I hope this was meaningful and generative for y'all um I hope folks uh watching the live stream have gained a whole lot of information and directive about what they can do or can continue to do if they're not doing it already. Um, checking out all of the links of the organizations and the rad work these folks are doing. Um, you can check out all of the institute socials and website stuff to continue learning about um, the constellation of things that are um, happening with, within this ecosystem of folks here. Um, so I think with that, I have nothing else to say because now I'm standing in the doorway of the Midwest goodbye. And I think that that, um, that is the end. So thank you all so, so, so much, friends. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>